Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. I probably don't have to tell you all, but the price of Bitcoin fluctuates a lot. So here's the price series going back to April of 2013. In December of 2017, one Bitcoin was equal to a little less than $20,000. That's when I was buying all mine right after that. Yeah. Then in June of 2019, only $12,445. Then another big run up in April of this year, $63,000 for one Bitcoin. And as of this morning, when uh, Professor Albrecht and I were having breakfast, uh, $54,075 for one Bitcoin. So this is a lot of fluctuation. And if you're on the bird site, if you're on Twitter.com, you see some varying views about what's going on here. On the one hand, you'll, you'll see folks like Steve Hankey, uh, a very accomplished uh, monetary economist, and he'll say, Bitcoin, this price volatility, it's all just a bubble. The, the real value of Bitcoin is, is zero. So this price is ultimately going to go to zero. Bitcoin, worthless. Who needs it? On the other hand, you have folks like, like Alex Gladstein, uh, who's a human rights activist and a big fan of Bitcoin. And he says, no, no, no. Bitcoin is the most valuable technology in the world. The price is going to the moon. This thing is going to take over everything. Now, these are two very extreme views. Uh, and hopefully what we can do today is, is get a sense of, of what, my, what I would call the, the range of reasonable. That is, these two extreme views are probably outside the range of reasonable. Reasonable people can disagree about what the, the real value of Bitcoin is, that is, what Bitcoin is really worth. We want to get a sense of how we think about that question, uh, how, how we should uh, uh, approach that question so that we can have a, a, a better answer than these two extreme views. Now, I understand that in a room uh, this size, right, that some of you are perhaps very familiar with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and others maybe just a, a passing knowledge of Bitcoin or, or other cryptocurrencies. And perhaps some of you haven't given much thought to cryptocurrencies at all. So we're going to start with the very basics. You know, what is Bitcoin? How does it work? And from there, we'll, we'll talk about what's the fundamental value of, of Bitcoin, and finally, um, how can we account for, for fluctuation in the price of Bitcoin uh, like we do? All right. Um, just as a, what time does this class end? Uh, 10.45. Okay. All right. So what is, what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is an unbacked digital currency. It's an unbacked digital currency. The two important words there, unbacked and digital. Let's start with digital. 
Bitcoin is a, a currency that you can use to make and receive payments uh, on the internet. You can have a seat over here if, you're, if you would prefer to sit in a chair. Uh, you can make and receive payments on the internet. Uh, it's a digital currency. Now, if you look closely here, you can see just behind uh, this uh, gray space, there's some physical coins. And so perhaps you're thinking, wait a second, he says this is a digital currency and yet he shows me pictures of physical coins. These coins, they aren't really Bitcoin. Uh, these, this is a picture that journalists use when they want to show you what Bitcoin looks like, but they don't really understand what Bitcoin is. Right, these are really uh, tokens that represent a Bitcoin. If you look closely, if you look closely, you'll see that these, on one side of these coins they have a holographic seal. And you can actually peel that seal back and you would find a digital address where that balance of Bitcoin is actually located. Right? So this is just a piece of metal that secures the digital address where that particular Bitcoin is located. To my knowledge, no one actually uses these pieces of metal. Uh, some people have, uh, hold them as collector items, and most Bitcoin, of course, don't have a physical coin uh, that has been uh, minted to represent them. Instead, uh, people are just uh, using this, this digital balance to make transactions, and, and images like this uh, persist because otherwise, I just show you a string of, of characters, and that's not a very uh, attractive image. So it's a digital currency. It's a, a currency that you're going to use uh, using your smartphone or, or your computer to make uh, transactions. It's also unbacked. It's also unbacked. Now, this is kind of a, a strange word for, for modern money users like us. Uh, because the, the monies we're, we're most familiar with, like the US dollar or the euro or the renminbi, these monies are unbacked monies. Sometimes we say that they're intrinsically worthless. This is just a fancy term that monetary economists use to say that if you don't use this thing as a money, as a medium of exchange, as a medium through which you exchange what you have for what you want, but if you're not using this item as a money, what do you use it for? Right? Like a, a dollar is very different from a cheeseburger. Right? I consume cheeseburgers, maybe too many cheeseburgers. But a dollar, I don't really consume a dollar. Right? I'll hold a dollar for a period of time and then I'll spend it on things like cheeseburgers, which I do consume. And Bitcoin is a lot like that. It's not a commodity, it's not a good. It's an item that you might use as a medium of exchange, as a money. Um, and if you don't use it as a money, it's not really clear that it's useful for, for anything else. Right? It's also not redeemable for anything else. Right? If you take a $20 bill to, to a bank and, and, and say, oh, I'd like to redeem this, they're not going to give you gold or silver or some underlying commodity. There's no contractual obligation to, to redeem that money anymore. It used to be the case that dollars were, were backed by gold, and so you could take that uh, dollar bill to the bank and the, the bank would be contractually obligated to uh, redeem that for gold. But that's not the case anymore. The dollar is irredeemable now. It's not redeemable for, for anything. And it's the same uh, with, with Bitcoin. Uh, it's not redeemable. It's merely exchangeable. And it's only exchangeable if other people are willing to accept it in exchange. Right? Voluntary uh, exchange. 
So Bitcoin is an unbacked digital currency, so we use it to make payments on the, on the internet. And it's not backed by anything else. It's intrinsically worthless, which doesn't mean totally worthless. It just means that it's either useful as a medium of exchange or, uh, and, and, uh, or it's uh, not useful at all. Now, the real novelty of Bitcoin is not that it's a digital currency. We have other digital currencies. My Chase bank account is a, a digital currency. It's not that it's unbacked. We have lots of unbacked monies. The dollar, the euro, the yuan, right? The novelty of Bitcoin is the way in which it processes transactions. Bitcoin, which was introduced in 2009, processes transactions in a fundamentally new and different way. In a way that we were not able to, to process transactions before uh, a Bitcoin existed. So we want to think a bit about how transactions are processed. So let's start with some transactions that you're a bit more familiar with. So what's your name? Steven. Steven. You use dollars, Steven? Yes. Oh, good. Okay, me too. Um, and physical cash, right, a physical cash transaction between Steven and I has to be processed. We don't think about processing cash transactions, but Fundamentally, a cash transaction between Steven and I gets processed. Here's how it works. Suppose I want to buy some alpaca socks from uh, Steven. You have to keep in mind that I'm, I live in sunny South Florida now, and so it's, what, October? A little cold for me up here uh, all the way up in Georgia. Um, so I would like to have some warm socks, and Steven is happy to, to sell me some. And we might agree on, on a cash transaction. Now, when I pay Stephen, say, $20 for these fancy socks, right, this, this physical, the physical nature of cash has some interesting properties. When I take the $20 bill out of my wallet, Stephen can instantly see that I own $20. I have $20 to transfer. And when, when I give that $20 to him, it's physical, so he can feel that $20 leaving my hands and entering his, right? And importantly, for, for the rest of you, once I hand over that $20, I relinquish ownership. I no, no longer have access to that $20, and so I cannot spend that $20 again, right? So that physical cash is, we don't have to worry about what we sometimes refer to as the double spending problem. I can spend this $20 bill once, but I relinquish ownership, and so I can't spend that again. I no longer have it. These turn out to be pretty desirable properties. Let me show you this graph here so we can see what's going on. You can think of Stephen and I as two nodes uh, in this payment space. And this transaction, it gets processed between the two of us without reference to anyone else. No one else needs to know that we make this transaction. No one else needs to say, oh yes, he does have that balance and this balance is transferred to Stephen. No, we can do this just between the two of us, just these two nodes. So there's just one connection between us. This process gets, tra uh, gets this transaction gets processed in a decentralized way between Stephen and I. That's, that's hard to do. It's hard to use this decentralized mechanism with digital payments. Because digital payments 
are fundamentally different from physical cash. Think about, think about a music file. Right? So if you have a music file on your computer and you send this to someone else, right now you have the music file and they have the music file, you both have the music file. Or a, a picture on your phone, right? So you take a, a picture. So you have a, 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 an image file on your phone and you share this with your friend. Right? You airdrop it to them. You don't give up the picture. Right? You have the picture. They have the picture. This would be a terrible money. Right? This would be like me giving Stephen a $20 bill, but also getting to keep the $20 bill. It would be subject to the double spending problem. I could spend this with Stephen and then turn around and spend it again and again and again. It would be meaningless. So when we have a digital payment, at least traditionally, we needed some other mechanism to process that transaction in order for it to work out okay. And traditionally, the way we processed digital payments is using a centralized clearing mechanism. Right? A centralized clearing mechanism. Now, unlike this decentralized clearing mechanism, the centralized clear, clearing mechanism, there's a, an important node that all transactions have to pass through. So, Stephen, do you have a, a bank account? Where do you bank? Bank of America. Bank of America. I used to bank at Bank of America. So suppose that Stephen and I are both customers of Bank of America. And instead of giving him a $20 bill, I swipe my debit card or, this is going to be very you know, weird for you, but I'm an old man at this point, so maybe I'll write a check, right? Uh, if I swipe my debit card uh, or write a check uh, to Stephen or engineer an uh, electronic funds transfer from my Bank of America account to his Bank of America account, how do we process this transaction? Well, we have a bank, a trusted third party, Bank of America. And what does Bank of America do? Well, they say, yes, I do own that balance of funds. And they debit my account and credit Stephen's account, much like how that physical cash changed hands. And importantly, Bank of America, they make sure that I no longer have access to that balance of funds so that I can send it again. Right? And so the very function that we saw with physical cash, right, that, that same processing takes place but it takes place because we have this trusted third party to process the transaction. There's, it turns out I don't have a Bank of America account anymore. I used to. I lived in, in D.C., Bank of America, very popular. Then I moved to Ohio. Turns out there were no Bank of America branches there. So I had to open up a Chase account. Fortunately, there are Chase banks in South Florida, so I still have that Chase account. And so actually, I would be swiping my Chase debit card, and we need to get that to your Bank of America account. It turns out much the same thing happens, but just at one higher level. So instead of us relying on a, a bank to process this transaction, our banks, right, Chase on my part, and Bank of America are making a transaction. And that transaction is going to be cleared by Fedwire or the Clearinghouse Interbank Payment System. Right? And what happens there? Well, Chase's account 
gets debited, and Bank of America's account gets credited, but it's fundamentally the same thing. That is, we're relying on a centralized clearing mechanism to process this transaction. We're relying on some trusted third party, whether it's our shared bank, or whether it's a, a clearinghouse at a higher level. Right? We're relying on some trusted third party to process this transaction. There's really just one problem with, with processing transactions using a trusted third party. You have to trust this third party. And as part of that, you have to give some identifying information about yourself to this third party. And so you sacrifice some uh, financial privacy when you go through a trusted third party. And you open yourself up ever so slightly in, in the US context to fraud. So we might want access to some payment technology that is both digital, but also doesn't rely on a centralized clearing mark, uh, mechanism where we have to trust some third party. And that, it turns out, is what Bitcoin enables. It gives us a way of processing transactions that is different from both the decentralized clearing mechanism and the centralized clearing mechanism. Instead, Bitcoin uses a distributed clearing mechanism. So the transaction between Steven and I, if I were to send him Bitcoin for these alpaca socks, it doesn't get processed just between the two of us without reference to anyone else. It doesn't go through some trusted third party. Instead, the entire network of users updates a shared ledger to reflect that my account has been debited and his account has been credited. Again, it's the same, the same fundamental things have to happen. Right? This Bitcoin protocol first ensures that I have a balance of Bitcoin that I can send. It accomplishes that by requiring that I sign a balance with my private key. And when I initiate that transaction to Stephen, I identify his public key where that's going to go. And then the system as a whole processes this transaction. It updates our ledger, uh, debiting my account on that ledger, crediting his account on that ledger to make sure that I no longer have access to that balance of Bitcoin so that I'm no longer able to spend that balance again. Now that's a very simple way of thinking about how Bitcoin works. Uh, and we'll talk a bit more about uh, um, the actual mechanics of this um, distributed ledger system or blockchain technology in a moment. But with that very simple understanding, we might be able to start to think why, why Bitcoin is valuable. You know, why is it that people are willing to hand over real goods and services in exchange for, for Bitcoin? Now, sometimes when I, when I think about a question, it's often helpful if you, if you think about some wrong answers to the question and be able to articulate why they're wrong. Right? It gives you a better sense of why the right answer is right. It's often not enough just to know the right answer, but actually to be able to understand why wrong answers are wrong. So let's start with two what I would say are unsatisfactory answers. Uh, unsatisfactory answers, which are unfortunately very common. The first unsatisfactory answer is that Bitcoin is valuable because it's costly to produce. Right? You'll hear people 
say this uh, uh, sometimes. They'll say, ah, Bitcoin is backed by the computing power that was used to create it. And so it's valuable. Well, not quite. I mean, sure, there's a grain of truth there. Is Bitcoin costly produce? Absolutely. So let's talk about how Bitcoin is uh, created. Let's go back to that transaction between Stephen and I. So here we have a chain of transactions or a blockchain. This is analogous to the ledger I described before. This ledger that has an account balance for me, an account balance for Stephen, an account balance for anyone else who's, on the, uh, who's using the, the, the Bitcoin network. And we've seen that this protocol is going to have to update this, this ledger. It's going to debit my account and, and credit Stephen's. How does that work? Well, when I make a transaction with Stephen, I announce a transaction request to the network. And this transaction is grouped together with other recent transactions, transactions that have been made in roughly the last 10 minutes. So these transactions are grouped together into a block of transactions. And then all of the computers that are running the Bitcoin protocol, they begin to, to hash this block. Now, what they're doing is they're taking laser pointer here, it doesn't work too well, but this proof of work here. You see this string of characters, this proof of work. It's taking this, this block header, it's putting that into a hash function to get another string of characters. And you know, we've got some, some math going on here, right? Uh, and this ensures that these transactions are, are uh, valid and that these transactions um, are, uh, are going to be fixed to the previous transactions and effectively update this shared ledger. All right, so all of these computers, they begin racing to hash the block, to take this, this uh, string of characters, put it into a hash function, and generate a new string of characters. Right? You can see these two are the same. This one is different, so we're going to get a new block header. But since these two are the same, this block, block 52, is chained to block 51. So we have the previous transaction history all the way up to block 51. And then we have the new transactions that took place in this most recent uh, um, uh, transaction block updating that previous ledger so that now we have a record of all past transactions, including the transaction between Stephen and I. So this blockchain or this chain of blocks is the shared ledger for the system. Now it turns out that hashing a block is actually pretty straightforward. And uh, the Bitcoin protocol uh, makes this relatively easy thing to do, especially costly. Uh, it does so uh, because it, it has to counter that double spending problem. And the way that the Bitcoin protocol came up with to prevent double spending is making it difficult to hash this block. So you'll see that, that these string of characters, they start with some leading zeros. Now this is referred to as the mining difficulty. It's not just enough to produce uh, a, a hash of the previous block header, but your hash has to have at least a given number of leading zeros. Let's say that at the moment the mining difficulty specifies that the hash has to have at least four leading zeros. So perhaps you, you hash the block, you get a string of characters, but only three leading zeros. 
So that's not an appropriate hash. So you gotta try again. You hash the block again and you take a look up only two leading zeros. So that's not a good hash. You gotta try again. And it turns out that the only way to find an appropriate hash fun uh, an appropriate uh, hash of this block header is to just keep trying. It's a brute force approach. And what that means is that every computer that is trying to process this batch of transactions has a random chance of finding an appropriate hash uh, of this block before every other computer. That random chance is equal to their computing power relative to the computing power of the network. So if you have 100% of the computing power, right, you're the only computer running the Bitcoin protocol, then you have a 100% chance of being the first person to find an appropriate hash of this block. If you have 1% of the computing power on the network, then you have a 1% chance of being the first computer to find an appropriate hash using this brute force approach. And so by, by making this problem difficult, we're able to process transactions and importantly, discourage people from trying to, to game with this system. We wouldn't want a system where I knew that I was going to be able to process a batch of transactions to confirm it as legitimate because you might worry that I would confirm a transaction with Steven and then turn around and confirm a transaction using exactly the same uh, Bitcoin with, with someone else, right? I might double spend my balance of Bitcoin. I might produce an illegitimate ledger. By making this essentially random, who among us gets to process the batch of transactions, and by recognizing the longest blockchain as the legitimate blockchain, we overcome the double spending problem without needing to rely on a trusted third party. Now, what does this have to do with new Bitcoin? Right? We said Bitcoin is costly to produce, but we haven't said anything about producing new Bitcoin. Well, this is, this is costly to process transactions. In order to get people to run their computers, to use the electricity required to process these transactions, they need an incentive to do that. And the Bitcoin protocol specifies a, a reward structure. Right? At the outset, if you were the first person to process a batch of transactions, you received 50 Bitcoin. And Roughly four years later, the reward had cut in half. And if you were the first person to process a batch of transactions in that era, you would receive 25 new Bitcoin. And so roughly every 10 minutes, a batch of transactions gets added to the blockchain. Four years after that, the reward is cut in half again to 12 and a half Bitcoin. And it will continue doing this until the reward falls to zero. So there's a a reward for processing transactions, and that reward is new Bitcoin that never existed before. Right? And so we're essentially creating Bitcoin in the process of processing transactions. And since it's costly to process transactions, we can say that it's costly to produce new Bitcoin. Now, uh, a batch of transactions right, gets blocked together. We hash this block. Someone eventually finds the, uh, an appropriate hash function. This blockchain gets, keeps getting longer. And when they add that block to the blockchain, they're rewarded with new Bitcoin uh, for doing so. 
So what's wrong with this, right? I said this was an unsatisfactory answer, and yet I just told you that it's costly to produce new Bitcoin. Well, the problem is with the claim that this is the source of Bitcoin's value. Yes, Bitcoin is costly to produce, but it's not valuable because it's costly to produce. This is really, it's a, a tricky idea to really uh, understand. It's a confusion that gets made uh, quite often because oftentimes in the world, cost and value seem to go hand in hand. The two are certainly related. But the cost is not the source of the value. I tell my students, never reason from cost to value. Always reason from value to cost. Here's an example. So sometimes you'll hear people say that doctors, right, medical doctors, not fake doctors like me, economics doctors, right? Uh, real doctors, medical doctors. People will say that they make a lot of money because they spend a lot of time in school. Right? Anyone heard this before, right? Doctors make a lot of money because they spend so much time in school. But that's not quite right. So suppose that plumbers spent as much time in school as medical doctors. Do we think that plumbers would start making the same amount of money that medical doctors make? No. Because what are they actually producing? Right? They're producing plumbing services. And there's some willingness to pay for plumbing services. Right? If, if you tell me that a, a CAT scan, like reading my CAT scan, costs $20,000, I'm going to say, well, I don't know how to read a CAT scan, and I would have to you know, incur a lot of expenses to learn how to, to read a CAT scan. And uh, this CAT scan is, is very valuable to me. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this CAT scan and, and pay $20,000 for it. But if you told me that, that plumbing, right, getting my drain unclogged was going to cost me $20,000, I would suddenly enter the plumbing business. Right? I'm pretty sure I can figure out how to unclog a drain pretty quickly. And then I can offer this plumbing service to someone else for $19,000. Right? And then eventually, pretty soon, this plumbing service is going to be pretty cheap. Why? Because, because plumbing service is not that valuable. What people are willing to pay for plumbing services is, is limited. Right? And so it's not that doctors make a lot of money because it's costly to become a doctor. Rather, it's that medical services are highly valued, and therefore doctors are willing to incur the cost to provide those medical services. So in the case of a medical doctor, it's not that the cost is causing the value. Rather, it's that the value is causing them to incur the costs. And it's the same thing here with Bitcoin mining. It's not that Bitcoin is valuable because it's costly to produce. Right? It, you know, digging up rocks in my backyard is costly to produce, but they're not very valuable. And if you spent more time digging them up or hired more expensive workers to dig those up, it wouldn't make those rocks any more valuable. Right? They're still pretty useless rocks. Rather, it's that. People recognize that Bitcoin is valuable, and so they incur the cost. The cost in terms of running their machines, the wear and tear, the cost in terms of electricity usage. They incur the costs because Bitcoin is valuable. 
So we can't say that Bitcoin is valuable because it's costly to produce. We need some other explanation for that value in order to justify why people are incurring the costs. Here's another uh, explanation that I find not so satisfying. Folks will say that Bitcoin is, is valuable because of speculation. Right? Because of speculation. Ah, it's just a bubble. These prices are just, you know, based on nothing. Just pure speculation. Well, again, there's a grain of truth here. Is there speculation in the market for Bitcoin? Of course. Absolutely there's speculation. It would be crazy to think there's not speculation. Because there's a speculation in almost every aspect of our lives. Most of you are students. And as students, you are speculating right now. If I were to guess, I would say that the bulk of you decided to come to college and get a degree because you, you believe that with this degree, you will be able to get a job that you wouldn't have been able to get without that degree. Is that a fair assumption? So do you know what job you're going to get? Do you know how much that job is going to pay? No. You get a pretty good guess, but you're speculating. That is, you recognize that the future is unknown and in some sense unknowable, but you also have some information about the world, how the world works, and what things are likely to be valued in the next four, hopefully four years, right? Maybe a little longer for some folks, but four years for most of you. Right, so, so you're speculating on that. You're taking a good guess. And that's what folks are doing in the market for Bitcoin. Do they know what the value of Bitcoin will be in the future? No. But they're taking a good guess. So it doesn't really make sense to say, to just write this off as speculation. If we, if we permitted an explanation like that in the market for Bitcoin, it's like a, it's like a know-nothing view. Right? We would have to permit this, this argument in every other area of our lives. And so then we can just know nothing about anything, and we all just go home. Right? Can't know. Right? Not very helpful. So instead, we need to think seriously about what they're basing this speculation on. That is what the fundamental value of Bitcoin is. What it is that Bitcoin lets us do that we wouldn't be able to do uh, otherwise. So here's, here's the source of the fundamental value of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is intrinsically worthless, right? which again just means it's either used as money or it's not useful at all. So the fundamental value of Bitcoin, it's only valuable insofar as it's used as a medium of exchange today or is expected to be used as a medium of exchange at some point in the future. Zero is a possibility. We haven't ruled that out. If nobody uses Bitcoin, it's just like the rocks in my backyard. Zero priced. But if it is used as a medium of exchange, or if we expect that it's going to be useful as a medium of exchange in the future, then, then we're willing to hand over some real goods and services for it today. Then it will command a positive price. Then it has some value. 
Now, I want you to, to imagine that we were not standing here in 2021, but instead we're, we're standing in the year 2008. And I came here not to talk about Bitcoin, but to tell you about this new technology that I've come up with. And I tell you that this new technology allows you to transfer a balance of funds virtually anywhere around the world almost instantaneously at a very low cost and without sacrificing your financial privacy. If you heard this, how many of you would have an immediate reaction that would be, this is worthless, right? Not worth anything. No value to this technology. Right? That seems a little unlikely. It's possible, of course. It's possible that we have this technology and nobody will use it. But this, this thing that, that the technology enables you to do, transfer value roughly anywhere around the world at a very low cost, is pretty valuable. Right? So people are going to want to use this. You said 1045? So that's what Bitcoin does. Right? People might want access to this kind of payment technology. Right? Now, some people in this space, they, they commit what I like to call the all or nothing fallacy. Right? Bitcoin is either everything or it's nothing. On the everything side, you'll, say, you'll hear people say, uh, the, the popular meme is uh, infinity divided by 21 million. Right? All of the asset values in the world divided by the number of Bitcoin. Like, well, that's kind of crazy. Uh, and on the other side, they'll say, ah, oh, we, we have other monies. Why do we need Bitcoin? We just use dollars. And, and these are both extreme views. It's probably the case that there are some transactions that have some particular characteristics and that Bitcoin is especially well-suited in those transactions. As an, al an analogy, think about using monies more generally, like whether to use a money or not use a money. If you've taken a money in banking class, you have probably heard that money allows you to overcome the barter problem, the double coincidence of once problem, or the mutual coincidence of once problem. When you're bartering, when you're exchanging goods for goods, when you're not using a money to engage in trade, you have to find someone who has what you want and wants what you have. And this is, this is a difficult thing to do. And you know that it's a difficult thing to do if, if you've uh, you know, ever engaged in some dating. Right? Dating is a barter transaction as well. You have to find someone who has what you want and wants what you have. Right? And so well, this is like, like there are magazines, right, where people are like, how do I do this better? Or why is this so terrible, right? Because it's a difficult thing to do. Right? We understand those costs. It's difficult to find that match. And money, in, our, in, in many of our transactions, make it possible to find a match, not in relationships, at least not typically, right? But in other aspects of our lives, that allows us to find some match where we don't need the other person to want what we have, the goods and services that we produce, because they can just take our money. Right? And then they can use that money to purchase goods and services from someone else. Right? So money is useful, but we don't want to commit the all or nothing fallacy. 
We don't want to say that since money is useful, it's always useful. In my, in my house, we don't use money. Right? My wife, she doesn't pay me to take the trash out. And I don't pay her to, to make dinner. Right? We're exchanging bundles of services all the time, but we don't use money because we don't need to use money. We're in a long-term committed relationship. We have enforcement mechanisms like shunning and shaming. She's very good at that, it turns out. Right? So we can facilitate these exchanges with things like trust and reciprocity. But when I checked into my hotel last night, I didn't say, like, well, you know, I'll pay you back. Right? I'll do some things for you. Just trust me. Because the hotelier would have said, I don't even know who you are. How am I going to trust you? Maybe I'll never interact with you again. How am I to expect some reciprocity? Right? So just because we find money useful in some circumstances doesn't mean that it's useful in all circumstances. And just because money is not useful in some circumstances doesn't mean it's not useful at all. Right? We, we can't commit that all or nothing fallacy. And we shouldn't commit the all or nothing fallacy with a particular money either. That is, just because Bitcoin might not be useful for some transactions doesn't mean that it's not useful at all. And just because it is useful in some transactions doesn't mean that it's useful in all transactions. So we need to think about the kind of transactions that Bitcoin is especially well suited to make. So if you're engaged in some international transactions like international remittances, now, you have access to alternatives. You could go to Western Union, but the fees are kind of high. And it takes three days for that transaction to process. You know, what if you have an aunt in Mexico who has just been involved in a car accident? She's on the way to the hospital. She doesn't have an insurance. And, and right, her husband calls and says, you know, we have to be able to pay this doctor or they're not going to treat her. Can you send us some money? Right? In that situation, you probably would, wouldn't want to say, well, it'll get there in three days. <laughs> right? You might want access to a payment technology that's instantaneous across in international borders. Right? With Bitcoin, it doesn't matter whether you're sending the transaction to Nashville or Nepal. Right? You're on the same, the same ledger. And so that physical distance is irrelevant. So you can send international transactions just as quick as you can send a transaction across town. Maybe there are some transactions where, where financial privacy is very important. Now, most of the time, I don't care very much about my financial privacy. Right, I pop into the coffee shop, I swipe my credit card. Chase knows I'm making the transaction. Right? The government can subpoena Chase, and they'll tell them all the transactions I make. And I say, I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter to me that someone knows I'm purchasing a coffee. But there are some cases where you might want access to financial privacy. Maybe you share a, a credit card with your spouse and you're purchasing a, a gift for them. Right? You don't want them to see how much you paid. So you want to keep that transaction secure. Of course, nobody goes there first, right? What is everybody thinking, right? They're thinking, Crime and tax evasion. And that's right. There's a use for, for cryptocurrencies for crime and tax evasion. Uh, I think I mentioned, uh, maybe I didn't mention, but uh, um, I'm originally from Ohio. 
And we have a, a former mayor in Cincinnati. Maybe you've heard of him, but probably not because he was the mayor of Cincinnati. You probably heard of him because he was a daytime TV talk show host named Jerry Springer. Yeah, you know this guy, right? YouTube some clips, uh, very interesting. Here's, here's a fun fact about Jerry Springer that I know. Jerry Springer once paid a hooker with a check. <laughs> now, maybe you're thinking, wait a second. How do I know that Jerry Springer paid a hooker with a check? Because he paid her with a check. Right? This transaction leaves a paper trail. So it's very easy to check up on. If you're engaged in those kind of transactions, you probably want some access to some financial uh, privacy, especially if you plan to run for mayor at some point. But here's the thing. When, when people hear this crime and tax evasion, they, they think about things that people shouldn't be doing. And certainly there's some of that. But some crimes, I would be willing to guess most people in this room don't actually think are wrong. So suppose you, by the uh, unfortunate lottery of birth, found yourself uh, uh, born and raised in Venezuela. And you're living under a pretty repressive regime, right? the Maduro regime. And you want to support the opposition party. Now, you're not doing anything wrong. You're participating in the democratic process. But I would highly recommend you not write a check to support that opposition party. Don't transfer funds from your bank account because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It might be illegal to support the opposition party, but most of us would just look at that as advancing a liberal democracy, not as being a nefarious actor. In that situation, you might very much want access to a financial, uh, uh, to, a, to a payment mechanism that protects your financial privacy. And Bitcoin enables you to make that transaction. So we focus a lot on crime and tax evasion. When you hear those terms, you think crime, bad. Tax evasion, bad. Bitcoin, bad. But it's much more complicated than that. It's also not the case that suddenly we got crime and tax evasion in 2009 when Bitcoin was created. You know, criminals, they already have access to some pretty good payment mechanisms, like physical cash. Right? There are a ton of $100 bills in circulation. Right? And a non-trivial amount of the demand for those $100 bills is criminal use. But we're familiar with those $100 bills or with cash in general. And so when you see a, a, a physical cash, you don't think, Physical cash, crime, bad. Physical cash, crime, uh, tax evasion, bad. Right? You think, physical cash. I know physical cash. I use it in perfectly mundane transactions all the time. And it's the same with Bitcoin. Right? There are a lot of transactions that are perfectly mundane that make sense to make with Bitcoin. Uh, and some of those transactions are, are uh, usefully made with Bitcoin because it promotes financial privacy. All right, so Bitcoin is valuable only insofar as it's useful as a medium of exchange or is expected to be useful as a medium of exchange in the future. All right, we've talked a bit about what some of those uses are. Now, recognizing that Bitcoin probably has some positive fundamental value, 
merely tells us that, the, that what it's worth is some positive price. It doesn't necessarily tell us why the price is fluctuating. Now, again, some folks say that the price fluctuates, right? It's just, you know, animal spirits or, or people being irrational, right? Either they're foolish or they're hoping that other people are foolish. And perhaps, right? But many of the decisions we make in our lives don't really look like that. And so we should at least consider the possibility that our standard tools of economics, supply and demand, can explain the, the fluctuation in the purchasing power or the price of, of Bitcoin. On the supply side, there's not much happening here. I told you how new Bitcoin was created, and it turns out actually that roughly every 10 minutes, the difficulty of mining, or excuse me, roughly every two weeks, the difficulty of mining is adjusted to make sure that a batch of transactions is processed roughly every 10 minutes. And since new Bitcoin enters the, 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 the uh, environment, uh, since new Bitcoin are introduced when a batch of transactions are processed, and a batch of transactions are processed every 10 minutes, then that means new Bitcoin is entering the system roughly every 10 minutes. And since the amount of new Bitcoin that's entering the system roughly every 10 minutes is predetermined in the code of Bitcoin, right? 50 Bitcoin over the first four years, 25 Bitcoin over the next four years, and so on and so forth. Right? That means that the supply of Bitcoin is increasing at a steady, predictable rate. And it doesn't matter what's happening to demand, that supply just doesn't change. It's pre-programmed. So we can't really explain fluctuations in the price by fluctuations in supply, because supply doesn't fluctuate. So we have a demand side story here. We need to focus exclusively on demand. So if Bitcoin is only valuable insofar as it's useful as a medium of exchange or is expected to be useful as a medium of exchange in the future, we need to think about changes, right? changes in the world that might lead us to believe that Bitcoin is more or less useful as a medium of exchange today or is more or less likely to be used as a medium of exchange in the future. Right? We need those changes in the fundamental value of Bitcoin, uh, those, those, that demand for Bitcoin, to account for changes in the price if we're going to have a, a fundamental fluctuation view of the value of Bitcoin. Now, you might say, okay, well, it's pretty big changes in the price. Can we really get changes in demand that are that big to account for the change in the price? And the, the first thing I would note to you is that we need to remember that Bitcoin is a money. Just as a show of hands, right? A show of hands. How many of you intend to use dollars today as your, as your money? How many of you plan to use the euro? Right? How many of you actually gave this decision any thought this morning? Right? Pretty much no one. Like, I'm a nerdy monetary economist. I don't wake up and say, which money should I use today? Right? Uh, because I reasonably expect that all of my trading partners are going to be using dollars. And so if I'm going to make transactions with those people, I have to be using dollars as well. 
The fancy way to say this is that Bitcoin or any other money is subject to network effects. You don't just care about this, this money for yourself, but you also care how many other people are in the network. Like a phone, right? a phone is very valuable so long as other people have phones. If you're the only person in the world with a phone, right, you don't have a phone, you have a paperweight. And if you're the only person in a, in a money network, it's not a very useful money. You're not going to be able to transact with very many people. And this network effect can create some, some peculiarities here with, with goods or, or services that are subject to a network effect. And for monies, it's pretty much all network effect. In particular, it means that if you think that there's a change in the network size, that there's going to be a change in the network size, like maybe people are going to exit the network, then you want to exit the network as well. And so pretty soon everyone wants to exit the network. So you get a network that collapses. On the other hand, if you think that other people are joining the network, then that makes it attractive for you to join the network. And so the network expands. And so we have this potential for an accordion. We also have this for other currencies, of course. right? We have a dollar network. The usefulness of the dollar depends on how many people are using it. But the dollar demand is, the fluctuation is limited to some extent. It's limited because the government is a very big player in this space. And we can be reasonably confident that the government is going to continue paying its workers in dollars. It's going to continue accepting payment in dollars. And so the amount of network fluctuation, it's not quite as big. Because there's this core group of dollar users who are interacting with the government. And a, a periphery group to those people who are interacting with people who are interacting with the government and an even more peripheral group who are interacting with people who are interacting with people who are interacting with the government. And so demand tends to be pretty stable. But there's no big core group of users for Bitcoin. Everyone in the Bitcoin system today could exit the Bitcoin system tomorrow. So there's big potential for this expanding and contraction. The lack of government support also has uh, another factor here, which is that Sometimes governments want to protect their monetary network. And the way they go about doing this in some cases is by discouraging the use of other monetary networks. We just saw this in China, for example. China has essentially banned Bitcoin. Uh, India announced that it was going to issue uh, a central bank digital currency. So basically like uh, a digital rupee, which, is a lot, uh, which would be a lot like Bitcoin, except for it would be a rupee instead of a uh, Bitcoin. And when they made this announcement, they said, oh, and by the way, we're going to ban those alternatives like Bitcoin. Right? And so we're getting new information about the future network size of Bitcoin. If something happens, like a ban in China or a proposed ban in India, we think, wow, India, China, big places, a lot of people. Those people are going to have a much harder time using Bitcoin in the future, so they're less likely to use Bitcoin in the future. So the network of Bitcoin users in the future will be smaller than I initially thought. And if the network is smaller, then it's not as useful as a medium of exchange. And so it's not going to be as valuable in the future. And if it's not as valuable in the future, it's not as valuable today. Right? And so we need to be thinking about that network size. India, it turns out, said, yep, just kidding. We're not actually going to ban those alternatives. Uh, so we got some new information. Right? Some new information that said, well, actually, 
maybe folks in India will use Bitcoin. And all the time there are these information shocks which affect our estimate of the future network size of Bitcoin. And as a consequence, we revise our expectations about how useful and how widely used this medium of exchange will be in the future, which affects the amount that we're willing to pay today. But these are big swings, right? Here, this is a swing that took place uh, roughly a year ago, December 15th to uh, January 28th. Big run-up in the price of Bitcoin. Now maybe, maybe we're just content to say, ah, speculation, it's all just a bubble. Nothing more to learn about the world here. But we should at least consider the prospect that changes in demand are driving, are driving this change in price. So we might ask, did it, was there any big event around what, around December 10th? Any big event uh, around that time? that would have this kind of effect on our expectation of the future network size of Bitcoin, how useful Bitcoin will be in the future, or the usefulness of Bitcoin today. Any, any big shock? And it turns out that there was. Now I'm going to preface this by saying that this relatively mundane talk up to this point is about to get very awkward. And just know that it is much more awkward for me than it is for you. On December 4th, Nicholas Kristof published this article in the New York Times where he uh, alleged that there was both criminal and repugnant activity taking place on a website called Pornhub. Uh, he was very clear about what he was referring to. He was referring to uh, videos including child rape, revenge pornography, um, those, those activities are illegal in, in, um, uh, in the case of uh, child rape, most jurisdictions. In the case of revenge pornography, some jurisdictions. Uh, but also repugnant activity. Activity that's not illegal, but it's just distasteful. Right? Uh, racist and misogynist content. Right? And so he publishes this article on December 4th. And almost immedi immediately, people take to Twitter. Here's Bill, Bill Ackman, very famous uh, activist investor. And Bill Ackman is saying, we need to, we need to put pressure on the, the card processors, Visa, uh, MasterCard, American Express. Now, he, he shouldn't have said American Express, right? Because American Express wasn't processing transactions for Pornhub or any other um, uh, uh, adult website at this uh, time, just as a matter of policy. He should have said Discover instead. instead. But this got sorted out pretty quickly. MasterCard on December 10th said, all right, we're no longer going to process transactions uh, um, uh, for Pornhub. And then uh, Bill Ackman says, well, how about you, Visa? And Visa said, yeah, us too. Well, how about you, Discover? And Discover says, yes, it's gone. And this virtually overnight right, cut Pornhub off from the traditional payment processing uh, um, system. But it didn't cut them off from processing payments entirely because Pornhub accepted Bitcoin and 13 other cryptocurrencies. Now, let me be clear. I, maybe you think this is a good thing. Maybe you think it's a bad thing. Right? I think reasonable people can disagree about this. Maybe you think, look, 
These people were engaged in criminal activity. Payment processors should not support these kind of payments. Okay, I think that's a reasonable view. Or maybe you say, wait a second, this is just an article in the New York Times. Like, don't they have to issue a court order or something, right? Isn't there some judicial process? Why do these platforms just get to decide that oh, we're going to cut someone off? I mean, okay, that's a, a reasonable view as well. Right, maybe you think that, that this is a good thing, or maybe you think it's a bad thing. But I think we can all agree that it's a thing. It happened, right, that, that prior to December 10th, people could use Visa and MasterCard and Discover to uh, renew their memberships, and afterwards they couldn't. And if we look at the time series here, look, look what December 10th is. It lines up pretty well. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that everyone in this space had to renew their Pornhub memberships. My, I don't know a lot about Pornhub memberships, but my guess is that they don't have that many members. That's just the direct source of demand. Remember, people are not just thinking about how useful Bitcoin is as a medium of exchange today. They're also thinking about its usefulness as a medium of exchange into the future. And so maybe many people were wholly unrelated to this market. Right? They had never transacted with Pornhub and would never transact with Pornhub. But after December 10th, they realized that they lived in a different world. Before December 10th, they had not imagined that, a, that all of the major payment processors would act in unison to cut a business off from the, payment the traditional payment processing space. And after December 10th, they realized this is a possibility. And perhaps it's affecting a business that I don't transact with today, but it might affect a business that I'm transacting with in the future. And by the way, this idea that major platforms carry a lot of power, right, this idea was just compounded in the weeks that followed. Right, as Twitter and Facebook started kicking people off of their sites that they uh, didn't agree with. Right? And so this idea that major platforms in the US have too much power and we might want technology that allows us to get around those platforms was suddenly very salient. And it seems pretty reasonable that people saw this information and thought, wow, that means that technologies like Bitcoin are going to be more useful for making transactions in the future than I realized previously. And as a result, there will likely be a bigger network of Bitcoin users in the future than I realized previously. And as a consequence, Bitcoin will be more valuable in the future than I realized it would be uh, previously. And therefore, I'm willing to pay more to get and hold Bitcoin today than I was willing to pay previously. That is this run up in the price, which if you just close your eyes and yell speculation, is impossible to understand. But on the other hand, if you use the tools of supply and demand, it makes sense. Right? There's, a, there's some, some rationality underlying what looks like an irrational world. All right, so I look forward to your questions. And uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.